here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. From Crooked Media, this is Unholier Than Thou. I'm your host, Philip Picardi. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, thanks to our living in a general hellscape. And a little bit later on, we'll be talking to the ACLU's Chase Strangio about a renewed threat to gay marriage under so-called religious freedom laws heading to the Supreme Court. But first, a slightly more pressing matter. Last week, we asked a timely, in fact, maybe too timely question. Is it a sin to hate Donald Trump? And then the very evening before our episode aired, the news broke. Donald Trump tested positive for COVID-19. Stunning news. The president of the United States now confirming to the world that he and the first lady of of the United States have both tested positive for the coronavirus and they will quarantine. The president tweeting out just moments ago here in the United States. Immediately, the discourse abounded from liberals and conservatives alike, many of whom urged prayer for the president and his family. Others, well, let's just say they urged the opposite. The president's diagnosis and subsequent plummeting in the polls has prompted all sorts of spiritual questions. But the one I'm most interested in has to do with a little something called karma. And then applaud again at the very end of the debate. But if you could, if you could keep, uh, restrain your enthusiasm between those two times, I'd appreciate it. And if you could send me a little good karma, that would also be appreciated, but quietly. Most of us know about karma from the age-old phrase, what goes around comes around. But is it really that simple? And is karma what's happening to Donald Trump right now? To learn more about karma, I called up Jason Siff, a practicing Buddhist who's been teaching meditation since 1990. He's the founding teacher of the Skillful Meditation Project in Los Angeles. Jason, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Let's say that recent news has made many people start talking about karma. And I'm wondering if we can start by having you explain what you've learned about karma through your own Buddhist practice. Well, karma is... um... It's a huge topic, and the question for me around karma in in talking about it to groups is that most people look at karma in terms of what's called karmic fruit, the fruit of actions that occur in the future, um, that something will happen to them because of something they've done in the past. But to really look at karma, you have to look at what you've done and to get a sense that karma relates to action that you've done with an intention. So it's not just something that you've done accidentally, it's something that you've actually decided to do, and it's something that you've either done physically or verbally or intentional kind of thinking. And so the basic teaching, old early Buddhist teaching on this is that intention to do something is going to produce some kind of fruit in your life and the action that you've committed because of that intention is of course also going to affect you even in the present moment it's going to have some effect 
I think just one basic thing around karma, if I could just be a bit academic. Sure. Here, it might help people understand something about the history of Hinduism and Buddhism and things like that. That, that the Buddhist idea of karma is that you actually have to have an intention. If it's going to be karma, it can't be an accidental remark or an accidental um, action. So, in the, so for the Buddhists, you know, um, you know, stepping on an insect accidentally is not, a, it's not killing the insect. But if you do it intentionally, it is. It's the same thing, you know, like, like why Buddhists will eat um, meat and, and why Hindus might be vegetarian in this respect is that the, there's a, a belief that, that the Buddhist belief of it being intentional is, is not necessarily believed by all people, that some people believe that anything you do can result in karma. And so um, if you want to really think about this and think, look at your actions and look at things, you know, maybe, you know, take a look at really what it is you're doing intentionally and focus on that because we can change our intentions. We can do something different. We have other choices. And to really consider that if you want to change your future karma, it's the best place to start is now. So in Western culture, we may hear catchphrases or, or, or adages, right? Like karma means what goes around comes around or karma is reap what you sow. So in other words, it's bad things happen to you if you do bad in the world. And alternatively, good things happen to you if you do good in the world. So like when we boil this philosophy down, is it really that simple? No, not at all. In fact... <laughs> <laughs> it really it really isn't just a kind of system of uh say retribution of you know getting getting what you deserve um from what you've done in the past or something happening to you out of the blue that supposedly you might have done in a past lifetime although you know asian teachings uh will will go in that direction but let's kind of you know look at it as ways in which we are habitually doing things, the way we, you know, continually act in situations, and that that will produce uh, similar responses, similar uh, situations. And you really can't tell um, when something's going to come back to you. That's one of the the Buddha's um, actual statements around karma, that it's something that um, you don't know when it's going to ripen, when it's going to hit you, but you can work on, on what it is that you're doing. And that's, that's really the central thing. It's the seeds that you're planting, not just looking at the fruits that are falling. Okay, that makes sense. So in, in other words, karma is not always swift. Karma is not always directly correlated to something that you've recently done. Karma can be attached to a past lifetime. It could be attached to something that happened decades ago. Um, it's really not as straightforward as maybe people who are not um, practitioners of Buddhism may think it is. Is that right? Exactly right. Yeah. The karma is not quick acting. You know, that's not the the basic idea, it's kind of, it sits and cooks. Now, a more cynical part of me is wondering if we as Western folks are interpreting karma through kind of this Christian lens, right? That we're familiar with the concept of sinning and that there's punishment for sinners. And so maybe we're projecting that onto this concept of karma. Do you feel like that may be what's happening here, that there's this kind of misinterpretation or oversimplification of the philosophy? Yeah, well, that has gone through in, um, you know, the introduction of Buddhism, Hinduism in the West. It's, it's largely been interpreted through a Christian lens. Um, 
and that the early translators of the Sanskrit and Pali were, you know, versed in Christianity and they were translating it using those words. So, so yes, mm. that is what's happening. And so karma becomes replacement for something like sin or fate or destiny or, you know, any of those kinds of systems which are saying that um, something outside is happening to you because of something that you might have done. Right. Well, alternatively, is there a comparable philosophy to karma in any other religion or faith that you know of? Or is karma kind of unique in this sense in the Buddhist or Hinduist teaching? Um, I would say it's unique um, because, first of all, um, it's it's heavily rooted in a belief in rebirth. Mm. So it's not necessarily um, something that uh, people from a monotheistic, you know, religion would immediately understand. It's it's something that goes on from life to life and it, it involves, you know, even such statements that the karma you create in this life will lead to a pleasant or unpleasant rebirth in the next or future lives. So it's not necessarily um, a guarantee in that way. Oh, it's just opposite. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so not to be um, too meta about this, but so I've been watching as, you know, there's been a, a news event, and I, and I won't be too specific because I don't want to entangle you in American politics oh, too much. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Go ahead. Of course. So let's just, you know, following the popular logic of karma, there, a lot of folks have been watching something bad happen to a person who does a lot of bad things in, in this world. And a bunch of people have been pointing at this person and saying, that's your karma. That's what you get. Let's first ask you this question. Is this that person's karma? So in other words, are we able to adequately deduce that if a bad thing happens to a bad person, this is karma in action? That's my first question. Okay. Yes, but even bad things happening to a good person or good things happening to a bad person or good things happening to a good person. Okay. So it's okay or fair for other people to assume that karma is at work in the world? This is fair game? It's fair, except the problem is where I, where I started off with is that you can't trace back to the root of it. You can't make a statement like, because this person did, did this particular action, this is their karma. It's the, the straight line causality, you know, this caused that, that's the problem here. In other words, if a bad thing happens to a bad person, it could have just been from a deed they did years ago or in a past life. It doesn't necessarily mean it's because maybe they're a bad um, arbiter of the law, for example. Yeah, according to law of karma, that would be, you know, in a sense, the, how do you say, when the fruit falls, you know, like they, they've done some action that in the past, it's in a sense has been sitting there and it comes about in their life. It comes back at them. But, um, okay. but it's hard to make the correlations. And I think that's the problem people have. In one respect, it's useful to make a correlation between action and result, because then it helps us, in a sense, question our actions and hopefully change and become better people. Mm. But, but to be able to say that a particular action happens to somebody um, because of something they did in this life, or that you can, you can pinpoint exactly, I think that's misusing the idea. I think that's trying to, to in a sense, ascribe a particular punishment for um, a particular action. And there's that Christian lens again, because this is my next question, is that, is it possible that you can get yourself bad karma 
by basically declaring that someone else is experiencing bad karma. Because isn't that in a way a form of judgment by saying like, this is your bad karma because you did something bad. Isn't that also bad? Yeah. I don't know why you'd want to go there though. Tell me more. What, what are you thinking? I mean, why, I mean, why the, the whole idea of under, of karma is to, is to arrive at compassion. Okay. Okay. Not blame, not, you know, to, to attribute things to people, but to understand kind of what's really going on inside of them, what's working against them and to have compassion for them in the end. So the ultimate goal of karma is to understand the quote unquote bad person. It's to find a way to relate to this person. Yeah, bad, good, we're all good and bad, you know, <laughs> to relate to to those sides of, of one's psyche that are, and one's behaviors which are good and bad or which are neutral, to understand there's much more to a human being than just, how do you say, just just say, just a label to them. And what happens if you can't find compassion? Well, you, it's, compassion's difficult. So you might find you have some, some moments of just not hating. Can you be more specific? That doesn't sound like a, a concept I'm familiar with in 2020. Right. <laughs> it might be a little <laughs> concept, you know. Um, you know, it's, it's what the, the Buddhists will often talk about as loving kindness, you know, that essentially you're starting to find in a place where the the hatred or anger you might feel to somebody is not so strong anymore. You can have maybe in Christian terms, something closer to an unconditional, you know, type of love or friendliness or kindness. But at what point does that become you being a fool to exhibit kindness when someone... No, no, but that's, that's a, a point. I mean, it could really be foolish, you know, compassion, foolish kindness. Um, I, I would say in most of this is um, you really need to understand the nature of people's actions. So say if somebody's actions are reprehensible and you don't hate them for it, but you start to understand you have kindness for them, then maybe, you know, you're, how do you say, able to to take away some of the the overlay, some of the biases, some of the ideas you have about that kind of action, and you're able to re-examine it. You're able to re to look at something. I don't really believe that people should be, you know, like in many cases, like there's a Christian idea that you should forgive somebody immediately, you know, when they've done something, or you should really race towards forgiveness in, in various conflicts and problems. Um, I actually believe that the Buddhist idea was investigate, understand, become aware, become wiser in these situations, and that will help you understand various conditions around it. And that is going to be the basis for more kindness and compassion. And also, it sounds like if you understand the situation and you educate yourself more about it, you know how to identify it better. Maybe the next time it might come around, right? Like, exactly, that's the idea. Yeah, because it's not like we're witnessing a once-in-a-lifetime situation here with our current political climate, right? As much as it feels extraordinary and unprecedented, a lot of people would say it's not all that unprecedented, right? If they take a larger perspective, they gain perspective on it, they'd say, no, it's not all that unprecedented. It's maybe unique to this country, um, but they traveled to other countries or lived in other countries in the world. They might not find it all that unusual. Um, mm. I'm not saying that that's an excuse for it, but I'm saying it is it's out there in, in the way countries are ruled and the way people respond to their leaders. No, of course. So do you ever feel like you trust that karma will do its thing 
if you don't feel like justice is being served in this current moment, is that ever a part of your human thought process? Well, part of my process is, is that I don't, I don't believe as a human being, I'm supposed to be an agent of justice. What do you mean by that? I mean that I don't think it's my role in situations to be an arbitrator, to judge somebody and to condemn them and, and say what they, what they deserve, what their punishment should be or anything like that. I don't see that as my role. I see my, my role in trying to understand their actions, what brought them there and how to relate to them. Okay, but surely as a human reading headlines, watching the news, you must be incredibly frustrated or moved towards empathy for people who are being harmed in this moment. Of course. I'm not an advocate of of ignorance. <laughs> no, of course not. I'm not implying that. No, I'm no. just trying to say, what are, what is your, you know, is there ever that human moment that you feel where you're like, well, you know, the universe will work itself out eventually, like, or they're going to get what's coming to them. That never happens. It's never part of your process. Well, you're talking about a political situation I'm thinking about, you know, the, <laughs> the, the, the person's going to keep stepping into one thing after another that's, mm. that's going to bring up their, their actions, their behavior, their conduct, you know, who they really are, you know, they can't avoid it. It's, so I don't, I don't have to get involved in, in, in and I don't have to be a participant in, in that person. That person, you know, is, is most likely going to repeat various mistakes and that's part of karma. They, they get locked into habit patterns that they can't get out of. Wait a minute, that's part of karma? Yeah, it actually is. How? Basically, um, the Buddhist sense of it is, is that the way we habitually act and behave is going to, in a sense, be something that we keep falling back into. You know, our conditioning, in a sense, rules us. And that's going to have certain results. It's going to make certain parts of our lives really unpleasant. And it may add to certain other parts pleasant. So. Like in somebody's case, like in this case, I think you're talking about, it's their habitual actions are going to keep producing misery for them and for others until they start to wake up to it. Now, one of the things that you said earlier that I kind of want to revisit was this idea of practicing kindness and compassion, of course, is another word. Mm -hmm. And I struggle with this a lot. I struggle with finding kindness and compassion in this moment and what I kind of like about the way that you framed how you view yourself in the world, not as an arbiter of justice, not as the decider, but of, of still finding your own way to choose or practice kindness. Is it possible in these situations that if we can't find the kindness for a specific being or a specific person with whom we are frustrated or with whom we are angry, is it possible to just not choose anger and to instead choose kindness towards others who need our compassion and who, who need our emotional attention? I think that's a, a wise choice, you know? Um, choose your kindness, you know? You can, you can choose the people, you know, you really want to uh, give your attention to and you want to help, and, and why, why should you struggle, you know, with um, somebody who, you know, you just, you can't get there. And I think that's understandable. I don't, I'm not one of the Buddhists who believed you can start from kindness. To me, that's more of a place where you, you get to periodically in your practice, in your understanding of yourself, in your own, your own meditation, your own self-reflection, your own looking at your, your emotions and 
whatever is going on in your life that you you go through you know maybe being hurt and and wounded and angry and you may find uh, just a, a, a small period where you uh, are not so caught up in that and you find a bit more kindness coming in but that that's how i see it and it's 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 something that comes up from real life experience not something that's artificial that you're just trying to become i was wondering if you ever fear your own karma like is it something that you're scared of or is it something you have to find peace with well yes i i realize it's something that is possibly there in the future and um will come back that certain things will come back but my my sense of it from having gone through a lot of different things in my life, I was is, I'm not so much scared of it. I'm kind of you know sideswiped by it. it. Surprises me. It throws things up. It changes my life, and then I have to readjust. And there's tremendous learning and benefit in that happening. Um, and so I respect it. So, you were a Buddhist monk in. Um, the 1980s, I understand, in Sri Lanka. Is that correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. And now you um, have written books about meditation and you also teach meditation. Is that also, is that right? Yes. I've been doing it for over 30 years. Yes. I'm sure that in your teachings, you've come across many people, maybe particularly lately, who are trying to figure out how to find or how to connect to themselves in this moment when it feels like so much tragedy is being thrown at us from all over. So I guess in closing, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing any advice or any intentions or strategies that you have for your own meditation or for your students. Well, start off by being kind to yourself when you meditate. And I would say, you know, allow your thoughts and feelings into your sittings. Don't necessarily expect your meditation to produce something or to get somewhere. Let your mind lead, let the experience unfold. Let yourself, you know, just go into it. Um, and I think you'll find that um, meditation is, uh, you know, it's, it, will, it will work for you. It will be your own practice, your own way of doing it. Wonderful. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Philip. Thank you for having me ebay motors is here for the ride with some elbow grease and a whole lot of love you transform 100,000 miles on a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own led headlights spoilers whatever you need ebay motors has it at affordable prices and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply Well, so long as we're on the topic of bad people and bad things, it feels like an appropriate time to revisit the confirmation of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. There was news this week from the court that prompted LGBTQ lawyers and advocates, and me, to panic. News that would only get worse if Barrett's confirmation goes through. To help explain what's happening right now, we have ACLU lawyer, Time 100 honoree, and all-around badass Chase Strangio with us today. Chase, thanks for joining me. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, yeah, I would normally be happy for you to be here too, but obviously it's not the most ideal of circumstances for us to be having a conversation together, right? Yeah, no, that is true. I think when I said I'm so happy, I may have overstated the mood slightly. Um, because, totally. Because things are are rather bleak. 
They are rather bleak. In fact, just earlier this week, um, you gave me a minor homosexual panic attack. Um, can you explain to our listeners um, what you did and said that made me have a panic attack? Um, well, I, f- I, I feel like, unfortunately, there are so many moments for homosexual panic attacks at this time. <laughs> um, so I have to make sure I'm talking about the right one. Um, okay. But so I, I think, yeah, so one of the very alarming things that happened this week was this is the first week of the Supreme Court term. So we are back in SCOTUS mode. And the court in their first set of orders coming out of their long conference, which is when they consider a bunch of petitions that have come up over the summer to decide whether or not to hear certain cases. On Monday, we got this denial of review um, in a case involving Kim Davis. Um, And Kim Davis, for those who are not closely tracking the ridiculous saga of county clerks who refuse to marriage same-sex couples, Kim Davis was the clerk in Kentucky who, after the Obergefell decision, decided that she would not issue marriage license to same-sex couples. She is not even a county clerk anymore, but there was a case um, involving uh, litigation over her decision to not issue those marriage licenses that was up before the Supreme Court. The court decides not to take the case, which is great. However, in an incredibly unusual move, we had Justice Thomas joined by Justice Alito issuing this statement, which is in and of itself incredibly unusual, essentially announcing their desire to overturn Obergefell, which is the court's very recent decision um, striking down bans on marriage for same-sex couples. Um, And so now we know that at least two justices want to overturn Obergefell likely um, and have made that announcement an incredibly chilling, maybe four-page statement. We are also, you know, we know that we're about to begin confirmation hearings for Judge Barrett, uh, who likely shares that view. And so I think where the homosexual heart attacks really sort of escalated this week was, are we really in a position we're about to potentially relitigate something that was resolved just five years ago and our marriages for same-sex couples in jeopardy in some way? Okay, I have about a million follow-up questions, but I'll try to keep it brief because I know that you have to get back to saving all of our lives. So let's just summarize what you just said, which is, and tell me if I'm getting this right. There's not an entirely slim chance that Donald Trump and the people who voted for him may actually have set the stage to reverse marriage equality for LGBTQ Americans. Is that, am I, am I saying that right? So yes and no. I want to put people at ease somewhat okay. because I think it is slim still. Um, and I think we have a lot of power uh, still to stop it. However, it is true that the current president, the justices on the court, and and by the way, Thomas and Alito were not put on the court by Trump. So this is a movement that has gone on for a long time, um, are sort of increasingly poised to try to do this. Um, and this being, uh, you know, overturn marriage equality for same-sex couples. Where I would say, you know, don't panic completely just yet is it's only two justices, It would take time to get up to the court. So an actual sort of full assault on Obergefell would take a year or two before it actually reaches the court such that they could do it. And we as individuals, as people who have the ability to organize and advocate, can change the conditions under which we are living through our advocacy, through our organizing. And I also think that 
I am not certain that there are five votes on the court to do it. So yes, we should be concerned. Yes, Donald Trump and those who support him and those people on the court who already are inclined to hate us are sort of moving in this direction. And we still have so many tools at our disposal to keep fighting back. Okay, so if you can just pretend like I'm Elle Woods and Legally Blonde, but like still in my first semester at law school, I'm just wondering how it's possible for the Supreme Court to undo a decision that was already weighed by the Supreme Court. Like, aren't we already done with this? How can they just go back and say, let's change it again? Well, so yes. So there's sort of like a both and here. Um, Okay. You know, so... The first is the Supreme Court can do whatever it wants. I hate that. You know, so big question about sort of how we have as a society invested so much power in nine individuals who are appointed by one individual and confirmed by, you know, semi-democratic, but not so much Senate, um, and then have their job for life. So a big question about sort of our government and its structure as a general matter. But the court has a tremendous amount of power, and that power includes reversing itself when it sees fit. Now, the sort of and here is the court also, at least sort of historically, touts this notion of stare decisis, which is the following of precedent. And it's very unusual for the court to overturn its past precedent. It's unheard of for the court to overturn such recent precedent. So just for some context, and this is in the LGBTQ context, in 1986, the court decided Bowers v. Hardwick, which was a decision that said that it was perfectly legal to criminalize sodomy between consenting uh, same-sex partners. So Bowers is this horrible decision from 1986 that allows for uh, the criminalization of sodomy. In 2003, the court directly overturns Bowers, saying, you know, and essentially the majority in Lawrence v. Texas says Bowers was wrong when it was decided and it's wrong today. And that is an example of the court overturning itself. However, that was 17 years later, and that is generally thought to be an incredibly quick reversal for the court. Um, And so, you know, I think that one of the chilling things about the Thomas and Alito statement is that it has no regard for stare decisis. It has no regard for the precedent of the court, even the court that those two individuals were sitting on. And yes, they were in dissent, meaning they did not, you know, sign on to Obergefell in the majority. But, you know, as justices, you would think that they would at least have some respect for precedent. But again, we're in this incredibly uncertain time. Um, And as another example, just this last term, the court decided to hear a case called June Medical, which was abortion restriction case that was almost identical to the case Whole Woman's Health that was decided just a few years earlier. Now, in June Medical, Roberts sides with the four liberals and strikes down the Louisiana restriction on abortion, citing the precedent of Whole Woman's Health. However, we now no longer have Justice Ginsburg. So the question of whether or not this court is going to respond even its most recent precedent is really up in the air. Right. And honestly, with the way that everything else is going in American politics, 
we keep on saying we're living in unprecedented times. So why would we be surprised if something unprecedented happened with the Supreme Court? Like, for instance, a known religious radical such as Amy Coney Barrett being confirmed and then taking up uh, stripping LGBTQ people of their rights as her mantle, as is something that she has demonstrated that she, at least through her ideology, that she actually wants to do. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely right. That's certainly that is her orientation. That is what she believes. She's, we should be very concerned about her agenda. Um, but I also think we should, e- even short of overturning Obergefell, I think that we should be gravely concerned, you know, sort of similar to the context of abortion, where even though Roe hasn't been directly overturned, we've seen assault after assault after assault on the right to abortion such that the right itself so limited. And I think that is also what we can expect. So even if we don't see an overturning of Obergefell in two or three years, um, which again, I do think is relatively unlikely, though not impossible, and I, and, and let's see what happens in the next few months. Um, but I think what is very likely and what we should be incredibly vigilant about is the continued continued, you know, limitation of the precedents that we have and not just Obergefell, but even Bostock and, and even potentially Lawrence, you know, who knows the levels in which this court is going to open the door for states and other government bodies to expand discrimination against LGBTQ people. And so I think we do have a lot of reason to be concerned. I think we should be concerned even short of the overturning of Obergefell. Um, And I think we have a lot of questions that are open that we're going to have more clarity on after we see what happens in the next few months with the election and the confirmation hearings. I know that, you know, one of the things that we've talked about before is that when you're appearing as a lawyer before the Supreme Court and you're preparing your arguments you understand the not just the makeup of the court in terms of conservative versus liberal, but you also understand the justices in terms of their religious orientations and how religion informs their own approaches to justice. Is that does that sound accurate? Yeah, I mean, I think in in front of every sort of judicial body, I think we really you know you think about the the human beings that you're presenting your arguments in front of, including their faith. And so, in those terms. How have you seen the religious right infiltrate the judicial system? And how does it make you feel about the future of America as a country? Oh, wow. These are big questions. So I think that the religious right um, and sort of the anti-LGBT, anti-civil rights groups have prioritized the judiciary in ways that is incredibly strategic for them and incredibly terrifying for me personally. And I think for anyone who's trying to litigate uh, sort of civil rights cases and, you know, we have had this president, you know, have 200 judges confirmed, many of whom were leaders in anti-trans movements um, before they uh, obtained lifetime appointments on the federal bench. And so it makes it almost impossible sometimes to think about how to prepare an argument if it's before someone like, say, Judge Duncan, who's now on the Fifth Circuit, who led the litigation against Gavin Grimm and in support of HB2 in North Carolina. And that would be akin to sort of what it would be like to uh, argue a case before a Justice Barrett, where you know that the individual's life view and understanding of the law is not just that you don't deserve rights, but that potentially that you shouldn't exist at all. Um, I think that makes it difficult for 
lawyers to present the case, knowing the orientation of the judges and the justices in that direction. I also think it's another way that we're going to see trans lawyers and other lawyers who have been excluded from the profession um, pushed out um, because it's it's incredibly difficult to argue a case on behalf of yourself and your community when you know you're arguing it before someone who actively hates you. Um, and so mm. it's a reason why we're also going to see uh, sort of less representation in in the advocacy community of lawyers who are arguing these cases and advocating these cases because it's so difficult. Um, and it's another reason why we have to have more robust strategies to transform the federal judiciary so that not just more rights are protected, and but more advocates are included. But as a lawyer, what does your profession teach you? How do you interpret the freedom of religion versus how justices Alito and Thomas seem to have determined what freedom of religion means. Like, what is the difference between how you see freedom of religion versus how the religious right is trying to make religious freedom defined uh, according to American society? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, you know, when you're talking about sort of general laws that apply to everyone, you know, you're going to have to come up with an incredibly persuasive reason why it infringes upon your religious beliefs. You know, however, when it comes to, you know, Alito and Thomas, they believe that just the mere existence of a right for LGBTQ people infringes the religious liberty rights of others. Um, and so, you know, when they wrote their statement uh, in the Davis case with regard to Obergefell, they had this whole notion that just the very fact that other people are having these legal protections is somehow infringing the rights of others. Whereas, you know, I don't conceptualize free exercise that way at all. And in fact, they don't either when it comes to non-Christian faith, as we saw with uh, their decision in the Muslim ban litigation as just one example. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're we're seeing more of a sort of theocratic approach uh, and a sort of Christian primacy approach to the law where the ability to practice one's Christian faith is privileged above even general laws that apply to everyone, like non-discrimination laws, and even uh, with respect to laws that infringe upon the free exercise rights of other faiths. Um, So I think that, you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy when it comes to how free exercise is conceptualized in the law. Um, But I think in general, there's a lot of hypocrisy in the law full stop, um, which is just another reason why we really have to think about how much power we give over to the courts when it can so easily be wielded in such destructive ways. Hypocrisy in government, hypocrisy in religion. I wish I could say I'm shocked, but truly I am anything but. But I don't want to end here because I don't want to end on a down note. So I'm going to bring you back to a conversation that we had not too long ago when you won your case at the Supreme Court to make employment discrimination against LGBTQ Americans illegal. Thank you so much for all of your hard work in accomplishing that. You are a true hero. And I remember what you said to me, which I think changed my whole perception of all of this Supreme Court stuff. You said that when you were arguing the case, you believe that the people outside of the courts, meaning the protesters, meaning the trans people who you had invited to the Supreme Court that day, many of whom were sitting in that courtroom, many of whom were sharing their own stories, you believed they had an impact on the judge's final decision, that a part of you was surprised at the final decision that came down, and that you felt you had activists and activism to thank. Can you explain what you meant by that? 
Yeah, even the ability for, you know, Gabriel and I as two trans lawyers to work on the case was the product of so many years of activism and organizing and the blueprint that, you know, that Polly Murray set, that Miss Major set, that Sylvia and Marcia set. So every step of the way was sort of the product of work of people, you know, being willing to demand that they exist on their own terms. So every step of the way gets us to a place where we're advocating and we have advocates from the communities we're talking about who are not just being talked about, but are talking about ourselves. And then, you know, we're presenting arguments to this body. Um, but these are human beings. They have, you know, even, you know, even those, even, even the justices that are in their eighties and their nineties have children and grandchildren, they have clerks. And those people are existing in the world that we are all creating together. And ultimately, you know, when you're litigating cases, you watch yourself make the same legal arguments one year. And then five years later, those losing arguments are winning arguments and the law doesn't change. What changes is the world in which the decider is living, which the judge is looking out on a world that is that is holding trans existence in a different way. And so when Justice Gorsuch writes Bostock, um, you know, in June or whenever he finishes drafting that opinion, he is remembering that there were hundreds and hundreds of people outside of the courtroom um, who were demanding to be seen, to be named, to be able to work without being fired just because of who they are. And that's incredibly different than the justices that might have heard the case 10 years prior, which again comes back to the power that we have to shape the outcome of not just the election, not just um, you know the next three months, but the contours and the context for the cases that are litigated before these, you know, lifetime appointed federal judges that, you know, can seem uh, uh, unmovable and, and maybe some of them are, but some of them aren't. And I think that it's on us to continue to push the bounds of what's possible. And we do that by making space for more of us to exist, to be heard, to be well-fed, well-cared for, well-housed and joyful. And then that in turn transforms the context in which all of these cases are heard and decided. And so we still have power over that. So I know we've talked a lot about the ways in which religion is used as a force against equality in America and particularly in the judiciary. So I just want to share a memory that I have of standing outside the Supreme Court the day you were going in for your arguments with Amy Stevens. May she rest in power. I turned around to see a parade of people marching. They were affiliated with Housing Works, which of course is a noted LGBTQ charity that provides shelter and clothing and services to LGBTQ people and other folks who are in need. And I saw at the front of this line a bunch of clergy members. These clergy members came from different faith communities, and they were from all over the Northeast, I believe. There was a group from Philadelphia. There was also a bus in from New York City. And the clergy members put themselves front and center because the marchers were basically doing an act of civil disobedience, which forced them to step into the middle of the street and stop traffic. And basically, they all offered themselves up for arrest. And they all broke out in song, got down on their knees, and held their hands up and waited to be arrested. And I remember standing there on the sidewalk. I was interviewing people for Out Magazine at the time. And I watched these clergy members just offer themselves up for arrest, you know? They were the ones who set the tone. So the police came forward and whatever, arrested them, threw them in the back of the vans, whatever the cops do. And it was a really powerful moment because I remembered that not all instances of faith are oriented against justice. And it was a powerful moment to see just how differently people in this country can express their faith And just how powerful faith can be 
when you identify its true origins of power. And it was a really powerful moment because I remembered that not all instances of faith here are oriented against justice. It was a powerful moment to see just how differently people in this country can express their faith and just how powerful faith can be when you identify as true origins of power. And I really wouldn't have seen that if it wasn't for you compelling us all to be there that day. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it is such an important reminder and all of the advocacy that I do, whether it's in state legislatures, whether it's in courts where we're getting briefs, whether it's um, in organizing, that there are are always faith voices leading uh, on the side of LGBTQ justice. Um, And so I I think it's so important that we not associate faith um, with the repression and the discrimination against our communities, because it's absolutely right that we have so many faith voices um, speaking out in support of, you know, the most beautiful and transformative justice. Thank you for being here, Chase. Thank you, Phil. It was just absolutely a pleasure. And I think even though it's depressing, we are going to keep building um, those beautiful movements. Well, that's all for our show today. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, leave a review, and tell everyone you love to listen. Maybe it'll bring you good karma, but no guarantees here because that might bring me bad karma. In any case, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Unholier Than Thou is a Crooked Media production. Elisa Gutierrez is our producer, with production support from Ruben Davis. The theme song is by Takuya Suzawa. The show is executive produced by me, Lyra Smith, and Sarah Geismer. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.